So tonight we are beginning one of um, the most, a study into one of the most controversial subjects in the church, one of, of, of many, uh, but it's controversial for a, uh, a bunch of different reasons. Our, our title of our series, I, I think we may have a graphic here, and it's Life, Death, and the End of the World. And if we were to ascribe a theological term to this study tonight, it would be a study called eschatology or the study of last things. Like the study of salvation is a study of called soteriology and study of Jesus is called Christology, not to be confused with theology proper, which is the study of God. You kind of think they're all kind of go hand in hand, but I mean, hey, we can talk about that another time. But life, death, and the end of the world, the study of last things is controversial. And um, we are living, the reason why it's relevant despite its controversy is we believe we are living in the last days. Amen? Amen? Now here's the thing. The last days for Jesus began on Pentecost. God's kind of perspective on time is a whole lot different than yours. Your idea of last days uh, may be the last few years of your human existence, but in the eyes of God, the end of his plan began to unfold with the birth of of the church. And so when Pastor and I were talking, we were asking ourselves, where do we begin with a series like this? And we explored uh, dealing with death and asking the question, where are the dead? Heaven, hell, Hades, Sheol, paradise, Gehenna, all these words. And what do they mean? And we will be talking about that very soon. Do we talk about the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness and how they're at work in the world and the role of the preaching of the gospel and shifting the eternal destinies of people? And we do we begin with principles of prophecy so that we, when we start looking at the scripture, we don't get it all messed up? Then we landed on, who is this all about? And let's start there. How do we begin? How do we wade into one of the most murky gray areas in all of the study of Scripture? We begin with the focus, the person that is the focus of the end times. The focus of all eschatology, the focus of all last things, whether it's the end of you or the end of the world, the person that this is all about is Jesus. Not the devils, not the Antichrist, not the mark of the beast, not the tribulation, any eschatology or any study of the end times, I want you to hear me real carefully. I'm going to slow down, try not to get too excited about this part. But any eschatology that gets your eyes on geopolitical situations in the world, conspiracy theories, whether right wing, left wing, anarchist, I mean, you pick your stripe, whether it gets your mind on technology, temple rebuilds, red heifers, blue heifers, green heifers, and not on Jesus, you got the wrong theology for your end times. Any, any last thing study that doesn't fix your eyes on Jesus is the wrong end times theology for you. Because here's who the Bible is all about. The Bible is all about Jesus. Everything is always been, it's not about you. It's not about you. It's not about the people you like. It's not about the people you don't like. It's not about the people you tolerate. Everything is about the revelation of Jesus. It's about the sovereignty of God. Daniel's vision of the Colossus uh, from Daniel chapter 4 to the 70 weeks visions. When you take a look at what these prophecies are really all about, and we'll break them down in the process. It's about the Messiah saving. 
and the sovereignty of the Lord over the ends of cosmic history. Daniel is in exile with the children of Israel and they're beginning to go back home, but it's not turning out the way they thought, Daniel thought that it would. And God sent him these visions about the end to remind Daniel who is in charge. Revelation is a book of apocalyptic literature, but its goal is not to reveal the end. The goal is the revelations of Jesus Christ. It's about the exaltation of Jesus, not just as the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, but you get to see him not hanging on a cross, but with eyes like fire sitting upon a throne with the posts of the tabernacle shaking and moving as he speaks and as all creation bows to him. And Revelation was written to Christians at the turn of the first century facing intense persecution. And both Daniel and both Revelation and every other eschatology book of the Bible is to lead people to the conclusion. If Jesus is King of Kings and Lord of Lords over the end of the world as we know it and all of the craziness that comes, how much more will he rule over your life right now? That's the goal of these books. That's their hermeneutical end, if you want to use theology terms. It's that when you see Jesus as King of kings and Lord of lords with the earth melting and the heavens shaking and the devil being cast down, how much more can Jesus take care of your family? How much more? You're to read it and say, Jesus is still the ruler of the end of the age. So how much more will he take care of me when I'm at work? I mean, my goodness, if he destroys the devil at the end, when he is embodying a human being, oh, he, he can probably defeat the devil that I face in my commute. Jesus can handle the apocalypse. He can handle your family. He can handle your kids. He can handle your marriage. He can handle your mind. The focus is Jesus. And since the focus is Jesus, where do we Begin with Jesus in all of this. Well, Acts chapter 1, 9 through 11 tells us. Now, when he, Jesus, had spoken, sorry, Acts chapter 1, sorry, uh, 9 through, through 11. I may have given you the wrong reference there. Now, when he had spoken these things while they watched, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly, Toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will also come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. So where do we begin our study of eschatology? We don't start at the grave. We don't start at paradise. We don't start at tribulations. We don't start at all the seals and trumpets and bowls and what all that could mean. Where do we begin? We begin by highlighting the climax of the gospel, the hope of those who have died and the hope for those who are still living. And that is soon and very soon we are are going to see King Jesus. Jesus will one day return again over the next, we're doing this all the way to December 20th. This is going to take us to the end of the year. We're going to go through some difficult passages. We're going to challenge maybe some of your beliefs, reinforce some others, maybe even create more questions than you have answers. But I don't want you to lose sight. I want you to remember, whether you're in person or online, this very important truth that serves as the foundation of how we begin to talk about the end. Jesus Christ is coming back. And focusing on the return of Jesus as our hope for the end, whether your physical end or the end of the very cosmos itself, should be the focal point of your life. Because we're apostolic, right? This means we seek to embody the early church. We want to be like they were in the book of Acts. And the return of Jesus was the fixation of the early book of Acts believers. For example, 
We can count on one hand in the mentions, the mentions of communion in the, uh, in the epistles. On one hand, the mention of the Lord's Supper and its practice in the church. There are only 19 references to baptism in seven epistles. While baptism is not mentioned at all in 14. By way of comparison, the coming of Jesus is mentioned in one out of every 10 verses in the epistles of Scripture. So outside of the Gospels, outside of Acts, one out of every 10 verses tells you Jesus Christ is coming back. Quick question. How important is baptism? Very. Yes, yeah, a one-word answer. Very. How important is it that we as a church prioritize the practice of baptism? Very. How important is it that we need to tell people that they need to be baptized? Very. How often should we speak of people being baptized in the name of Jesus so they can be united with his death and with his burial so that the old man can be crucified? A lot or very often. If that's the case, if that's the case that baptism is one of the foundational elements of the new birth experience, and it was mentioned, let's go back to the 19 times in seven epistles and absent from 14, and it's not to diminish its importance. We've already identified it. It is very important. How much more should the coming of Jesus Christ be on the forefront of the minds of the church because it was on the forefront of the minds of early New Testament believers. So that was my introduction. Let's now talk about the return of Jesus. I want to give you one principle if you're making notes. One principle of prophecy that's very important. Because sometimes where people mess up their interpretation is they don't capture this principle of prophecy. That one prophecy can contain God's entire redemptive plan, let alone his plan for the end of the world. So God in one prophecy will make a proclamation that is the summary of everything that he's going to do. And then later on, the scriptures will flesh that summary out and fill in some details. But if you're not aware that that is a principle of how when God speaks, he sees the end from the beginning. He sees, he sees things way more compressed than what we would see them because he, he's, that day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as a day. God doesn't measure time or experience time in the same way that you and I would experience the feeling of time. And as a result, one prophecy can attain, it contain the entire redemptive plan, let alone his plan for the end times. Let me give you an example. Genesis chapter 3. Three, Adam and Eve, they eat of the fruit of the tree of the garden, right? And they're cursed. And what does God say to the serpent? He says that there is going to come someone from the seed of the woman. You are going to bruise his heel. But he, the seed of the woman, is going to crush your head. Now we know the seed of the woman is Jesus Christ. When does Jesus crush the head of the serpent? Was it at Calvary? Was it when he died? Or was it when he rose again from the grave? Or is it at the end of time, at the judgment seat, when Satan is bound and he is cast in the lake of fire forever, which is the second death? One prophecy contains the entire redemptive plan. So when did God crush the head of the serpent? God broke the power of sin through his death, his burial, and his resurrection. But we are now in the intermediary time where the curse of the judgment of eternal damnation has been pronounced and the keys of death, hell, and the grave have been taken away. But the devil is still at work in the world prowling around like a roaring lion. But one day he will... He has been crushed, but he will be completely crushed for eternity 
one day. In fact, even Acts chapter 1, uh, 9 through 11 that we read together, the angel said, Jesus is going to come back just like you saw him go. Well, are they talking about when Jesus catches away the church? Or were they talking about when Jesus returns on the Mount of Olives and he splits it in two? What is he talking about? The answer is yes. That prophecy or that declaration of the end is speaking of God's whole coming. So that's really important. One prophecy. I don't think I have any monitors here. If we can just a little bit, or maybe just, maybe it's because I preached a few times this weekend. Just turn me up just a little bit. One prophecy can contain God's whole redemptive plan. So we're going to look at a few passages of Scripture here tonight. First Thessalonians chapter 4. Very briefly, First Thessalonians chapter 5, as I mess uh, with maybe some of your theology a little bit, which is fun, but it's Bible study. First Corinthians chapter 15, and then Matthew 24 and 25. Here are some very important Greek words as we walk into our study together. The first one is parousia, and that simply means coming or appearing. It's one of the most common words to describe the second coming of Jesus in the New Testament. It's used 13 different times. Now this word parousia, translated coming, many times in the scripture is a broad word that stands for all of the actions of Jesus in the end. And depending on the context, parousia or coming can mean the translation of the saints. It can mean Jesus coming into glory. It can mean him coming with judgment. And he can even represent the millennial kingdom. So that's parousia. It's used 13 times. The other important word for us tonight is the Greek word harpazo, which means catching away. And the idea of harpazo sounds like garbanzo, the bean. So that's going to help you remember that. Harpazo is it's a sudden or without warning catching away. Now, parousia, like the idea of the principle of prophecy, that one prophecy can contain the summary of, God, of all that God is going to do. Parousia is a lot like that in that it can refer to all of Jesus's actions at the very end of time. Now, this catching away is part of the parousia, and this catching away may be more familiar to some people through its anglicized Latin word, reperi, or rapture. All of Jesus' actions in the end are part of the coming of the Lord, and this catching away is part of his coming. And our belief here at our church is that the parousia of Jesus contains all of these things. It's the coming of Jesus to catch his saints away. It is the coming of Jesus to destroy the works of the devil. It's the coming of Jesus for the battle of Armageddon. It's the coming of Jesus bringing his millennial kingdom. It contains this idea of parousia and harpazo is the reuniting of saints with the Lord and the establishing of Jesus's physical kingdom on earth and all that that entails. And so we're going to look at our first passage of scripture. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and I want to give you a background. Paul is addressing false teachers. False teachers had arrived, and they had said, the day of the Lord has come. Now, it's important, for our, because it's Bible study, we're going to dive a little deeper. The parousia, at least in Thessalonians, the parousia and the day of the Lord are two separate things. The parousia is the coming of Jesus, and the day of the Lord is the part of is part of the judgment that Jesus is 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 bringing and and so um, the false teachers had said the day of the Lord had arrived and those people that had died and were buried had missed the coming of Jesus and those who were still alive were now living in the day of God's wrath and so People had lost loved ones to martyrdom and to disease and to illness, and they were grieving their loss because they thought they lived for Jesus. Now they're dead. What was the point? And they're also freaked out for themselves because they're like, we missed the coming of the Lord Jesus. Now we're going to get hit in the head with flaming rocks and deal with the Antichrist. It's going to be really bad. 
And so Paul is writing to answer two questions. What's going to happen when Jesus returns? When would Jesus return? Tacked onto that, has Jesus come back yet? And Paul's answer to that last tacked on question is a resounding no. Jesus has not yet returned. So anyone that would have a preterist perspective, the idea that the coming of the Lord has already taken place or already happened would have serious problems with the Apostle Paul because the Apostle Paul is saying the coming of Jesus Christ is a future event that has yet to happen. What's going to happen? He tells us in verse 13, he says, I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. He's saying, don't worry about the people who've died because they're going to be resurrected again from the dead. How do we know they're going to be resurrected again from the dead? Well, Jesus was resurrected again from the dead. The certainty of your resurrection is Jesus's resurrection. And then he says, for this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming, parousia, of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. Again, addressing this fear. Those who have died will not be left behind. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. He's saying when Jesus returns, he's not sending another. He's not sending an intermediary. He's not sending a pack of angels. The Lord himself. How do you know when Jesus returns? Jesus is going to come back himself. And it's not going to be something that's going to happen in the corner or happen in a secret for the life of a believer. Because when he comes, he's going to come with a shout. He is going to come with a voice of an archangel. And it's going to come with a blast of a trumpet. It's not going to be something that if you are in Christ, dead or alive, that you're not going to know it's happening. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught suddenly, violently, harpazo, cut up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Comfort one another with these words. Caught up, harpazo means suddenly, violently, snatched away. Or in Latin, those who are alive and remain will be raptured together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Now, why did Paul, and this is really cool, why did Paul have the dead rising first instead of believers and living and dead rising together? The answer may lie in Paul's use of imagery. Paul is describing the end in language that people in that day would understand. He's using words that were familiar. They weren't special or unique or mysterious, you know, magical, religious-only words. He uses parousia as something that they would have been very familiar with. In ancient Greco-Roman literature, there's all sorts of examples in histories and in mythology of cities putting on these big parades when the word came out that a general or a king or an empire or or in the case of mythology, one of their gods, was coming, Parasuya, to the city, that he was descending suddenly upon the city. In these descriptions, citizens went outside the city to meet the conqueror's Parasuya, his coming and his entourage, and then upon meeting him, they would, after a time of celebration, return back to the city and join in the party. But the order in which the citizens would go out to meet the king was highly significant. 
the highest ranking officials in the city went out to meet the dignitary first, followed by everybody else. According to Josephus, this is what happened when Vespian came to Rome after Jerusalem was conquered. And it seems like Paul is appealing here to their knowledge of these parousia uh, uh, processions that just as the city's honored citizens were to go out and meet the Lord with his entourage first, so the dead in Christ, the people, the false teachers said Jesus had forgotten. Paul saying, the people that you are saying Jesus has forgotten are actually going to be the honored guests at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so a parousia was when a king was coming and he had conquered and he was coming with his victory. He was coming with his entourage. He was coming to celebrate and unleash a parade of victory upon the city. When the people heard the king was coming, the parousia was coming, they would run out to meet him before he ever arrived. And then after that time of meeting, they would come back and they would celebrate in the city together. And this is the imagery of the rapture that Jesus Christ is going to call his people to meet him in his victory celebration as he is getting ready to be coronated king of the whole world. And the scripture says, comfort one another with these words. In other words, this catching away is your hope. It's hope for those who have died that God has not forgotten you. It's hope for those that had been martyred or that had succumbed to disease or that had died because of poverty or died because of murder or violence that the Lord Jesus Christ had not forgotten your faithfulness, that you had stayed true until the end and that when he comes back, he's going to invite the dead in Christ to meet him first. But it's also hope for the living that when the Lord is getting ready to come home, He's not going to make you wait till he comes and sets up the physical kingdom. He is going to invite you to come to him so that when he returns, you can join him in the party. So when will the catching away happen? This is the controversial part. There are some options in a dispensationalist model of the end times that the catching away could be pre-tribulation, mid-tribulation or pre-wrath or post-tribulation. Let me give you my take because I got the microphone tonight. Let's go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. So remember, the Bible was not written with chapters and verses. Chapters came, I think, 1,200-ish. Verses came a few hundred years later. So when Paul is writing in chapter 4, it's not like break, new thought. It's a continuation. So he talks about the parousia, coming of the Lord, and that he's going to snatch away those that are dead and those who are alive. But then he says in verse 1 of chapter 5, I didn't give you this uh, passage. I'm so sorry about that. Uh, but concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, so you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. So we're going to talk about how the Lord will come suddenly in a moment. But remember, the day of the Lord is referring all the way, always in the Old Testament to the wrath of God, to the judgment of God. And he says, I don't need to write to you. You know perfectly that judgment is going to come like a thief in the night for when they say, not us, they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them and labor pains upon a pregnant woman and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in the darkness. You are not in the darkness so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are a part of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. Verse 9. For God did not appoint us to wrath, 
but to salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Therefore, comfort each other and edify one another just as you are doing. The controversial territory, if you disagree with me, you are free to say something different. But the events of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 happened before the events of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And he says, you are children of the day. You are not to be asleep. The sleep is for those that are drunk. The sleep is for those that are numb. The sleep for those are they're not sober. You are children of the day. The day of the Lord is not going to come upon you suddenly because God has not appointed you to wrath. So when will the Lord come? Calendar and date? I do not know. And we'll talk about how it's important. We don't try to predict. But I do believe the scripture lets us know that we as the church of Jesus Christ are not appointed unto wrath. We are not appointed unto the day of the Lord. That the catching away of the church, at least according to Thessalonians, happens before the day of the Lord is unleashed upon the world. And 2 Thessalonians breaks that down in even greater details. He talks about the revelation of the man of sin, which is why I believe that the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ will happen before the great tribulation comes upon the world. Because we know, Pastor will talk about it, he's going to talk about the length of the tribulation, what's going to happen when, what's going to happen where. The scripture lets us know that the catching away of the church will come without warning. It'll be sudden. There'll be no signpost. The Lord is just going to come with a shout. He is going to come with the voice of the archangel and he's going to come with a blast of a trumpet. And so it makes sense to me, according to 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5, that the Lord most likely will come before the tribulation comes our way. And the Olivet Discourse, and those of you that are in starting point right now are going to be really familiar with this, this portion. The Olivet Discourse shows us, it's Matthew 24 and 25. It's Jesus' longest discussion about the coming of himself, about him coming back. And shows us how this understanding of the day of the Lord and the catching away. Whether you agree with me that it is pre-tribulation, mid or pre-wrath or post, doesn't matter. Hope we all make it. Whether you go to heaven with the blast of a trumpet, you die before it happens, or the Antichrist kills you as long as you go to heaven. I mean, who cares, right? Um, I mean, you do care, ultimately. It'll be a completely different end, uh, but uh, we don't have to go down that road. Um, but at the end of the day, we're still going to heaven. But this belief in the coming of the Lord, if one out of every epistle, one of the verses, one of every 10 verses, I should say, out of every epistle talks about the coming of the Lord, we should have our lives impacted by this belief. This should impact your life more than the gifts of the Spirit. Its role in your life should impact. This should impact, the coming of Jesus should impact you more than what you believe the promises of God are for your life here and now. This should impact your life. The fact that Jesus is returning should impact you more than any other experience, belief, or practice in the Christian faith. It is talked about more than baptism. It is talked about more than communion. It is on the lips of the early church. They had confessions of faith that referenced the coming of the Lord. They had songs we know from history that referenced the coming of the Lord. Everything they did was in preparation. Every generation from the apostles to the post-apostolic fathers looked forward to the coming of the Lord. It wasn't until later on in church history where the church became institutionalized that they no longer believed that God may come in their lives lifetime. But if you're going to be like the early church, you've got to live with this belief that it's soon and very soon. At any moment, I don't know when Jesus is going to return. So how should it impact my life? Well, in the 15 minutes I have left, I want to give you this. And I will go, I owe a great debt to Jordan Ansley for this portion. We rewrote, um, we rewrote our starting point lesson, and when Pastor and I were talking 
we wanted to include this particular portion and this Bible study tonight because it's not enough just to talk about the coming of the Lord without talking about how it's going to impact your life right now. So I want to give you two ways and a starting point because they have you have more time on this. You, I think you have three ways, but I'm going to give you two ways that the coming of the Lord will impact your life. The belief that the coming of the Lord will impact your life. And it's going to come from no other words, but the words of the one who's coming back for you. The words of Jesus. Matthew 24, 3 to 6. It says, now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, this is why it's called the Olivet Discourse, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when these things will be. And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? What's Jesus do in verse 4? He says, he answered them and said, Take heed, no one deceives you. It's like, Jesus, just let us know. When are you coming back? He's like, watch out. People are going to try to mess with your head. You will hear, I am, many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled. So, if I can meddle with your online behavior just a little bit. If you're constantly scrolling through people talking about what's going on in the Ukraine with Russia, and they're like, this is it, this is it, this is it, this is it, get ready. This is it. You will hear of wars and of rumors and wars. See that you are not troubled. For all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. Point number one, because you live with the notion that Jesus could come at any moment, you will be very careful about who you follow, especially when it comes to how they talk about the end. The first thing we learn about Jesus and his return and the end times is that when studying this topic, you need to be wary of false teachers and deception. As time goes on, many people will make false, that means they don't know they're wrong, or deceptive, that means they know they're wrong and they're saying in any way, claims. Some people will claim to be Jesus himself. Others will claim to have secret teachings or mysterious revelations from the Lord that have come in dreams and in visions, but nowhere do they reference the word of God within its context. People will be pointing to geopolitical rumors and signs of the end. And Jesus is saying, hey, when you see a bunch of stuff go down, this ain't it yet. There's more to come. Think about it. We're worried about the things that are happening right now. And the world has gone through in modern history two world wars that ended with the dropping of two nuclear bombs. And we have gotten nowhere close to that in modern history yet. And some of us, because we spend too much time on the internet, are ready to roll it all up because of the tensions that are going on right now. And Jesus is saying, listen, people are going to be talking, there's going to be rumors, but don't you focus on that. He reminds his disciples, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons. Someone comes to you and they want to talk about blood moons, blue moons, green moons. Like, don't get into that. Don't. Don't. Jesus says, don't do it. Don't get sucked into it. I haven't been on Facebook and seen what you've posted. I have been on Facebook. I haven't seen anybody post about this stuff. So if you feel like I'm calling you out, I'm, I'm really not. The Lord blocked it. Uh, and uh, Or maybe I did. I don't know. I don't know. But um, it's not. It's, he's saying, don't get wrapped up in those conversations. Don't get wrapped up in that dialogue. In fact, another point in Matthew 24, referring to the end and his return, he says, of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my father only if Gabriel doesn't know the person on Instagram don't either Just, okay here we go praise the Lord in other words the timing of the end is God's business we're focused on Jesus coming back who the Antichrist is where the Antichrist is what country he'll come from what the mark is we can all ponder that kind of stuff but we're looking for Jesus People say, what do you think about this, this sign, this cosmological event? Well, the only cosmological event I'm looking forward is for when I see Jesus and I'm caught up to meet him in the air. Be cautious about listening to or giving any attention to people that are focused on signs, symbols, and timing. If anyone comes to you with predictions that are muddled in conspiracy theories and human politics, beware. 
Beware, big flashing red sign. Obviously, this is not somebody I need to listen to. While geopolitical tensions, natural disasters, flagrant perversion are all signs of the last days, you and I do not know the day nor the hour of the Lord's return. And no technological advances or economic factors, no matter how unsettling, can let you know when Jesus will return. And while we are absolutely an apostolic church, we are not cessationists, we are continuous, we believe in the gifts of the spirit. We believe in prophecy. If anyone comes with an air quote prophetic claim that they know the year, time, or month of Jesus, they're nuts and you shouldn't listen to them. Amen. I'll amen myself because it's true. Number one, beware who you listen to. So you're not swept away in false doctrine. False. I know of people in recent memory that got swept up in things like preterism. They got swept up in extremes of prophecy. And now they're not serving God because they got so wrapped up in signs and symbols that they lost sight of who it was they were waiting to return. And that is Jesus Christ. The second point I want to make here is that you must always stay ready for his return. It's going to come in two points. You must always, how does the, how does the coming of the Lord impact? Stay ready for his return. Always. You're going to stay ready because Jesus might come sooner than what you expect. Matthew 27, 37 through 44, as the days of Noah were, so also will be the coming of the son of man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark, and they did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So also will be the coming of the Son of Man be. Two men will be in the field, one will be taken, the other left. Two, men will, two women will be grinding at the meal, one will be taken and another left. Watch therefore, for you do not know the hour your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have washed and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Throughout these stories of Noah, the thief of the night, Jesus emphasizes that he could return at any moment and it may be sooner than what you expect. The people in Noah's day, they heard the preaching, they heard the word, and while they were waiting for the raindrops to fall, God shut the door and it was over. Be careful. This is why you gotta be careful who you follow. You listen to the wrong people. They'll tell you things like, this is gonna happen. And that's going to happen before Jesus returns. And you can live with one foot on the break of your walk with God and be like, I got time to do me. I got time to live for my flesh. No, you don't. Jesus can come at any moment. Number two, you must always stay ready because Jesus may come later than what you expect. Matthew 25, 1 through 13. I don't have time to read it all, but it talks about 10 virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now five were wise and five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps with no oil in them. Wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed... They all slumbered and slept, and at midnight a cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming, go out to meet him. Then all of those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered and said, No. Verse 10, And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. Afterwards, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open up to us. But he answered, and this is where the parable turns cosmic. I say to you, I don't know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day or the hour which the Son of Man is coming. Jesus flips it all around. He said, days of Noah, I shut the door before they were ready to come in. And the day and, and the parable of the, ten, uh, the, ten, the five wise and the five foolish, the bridegroom was delayed. This doesn't mean that the Lord's coming can be delayed by anything at all. It means that the bridegroom did not show up when they expected him to come. 
And so the point of these parables is that at all moments we have to watch, therefore, and be ready. This means we've got to obey the gospel. We need to repent of our sins. We need to be water baptized in the name of Jesus. We need to be full of the Holy Ghost and we need to stay full of the Holy Ghost. This is why we need to be holy as he is holy. This is why the scripture says without holiness no one shall see the Lord. This is not the time to be compromising and not the time to be compromising with your walk with God and saying, is this really a heaven issue? Is this really a hell issue? This is not the time to be having those kinds of conversations. This is the time for you to give your all to Jesus, not to grow lazy, not to grow complacent, to stay full of the Holy Ghost because he is coming. And when he comes, it's gonna, it's gonna be soon. We don't know what soon looks like, so you got to stay ready. He may come later than what you expect. He may come sooner than what you expect. You don't have time for the flesh. You don't have time to be carnal. You don't have time to be angry. You don't have time to not have the fruit of the Spirit. You don't have time not to pray, not to be in church, not to give God your all, not to make your calling and election sure because he is coming back. What is the most important thing? I'm getting ready to come to a close. At the launch of this series, as we are getting ready to walk into the weeds of Daniel's visions and revelations, symbols, we got ready to talk about millennial kingdoms and dragons and beasts and big horns and little horns. What's the most important thing for you to fix your eyes on? Jesus is coming back. Jesus is returning. You need to watch who you follow and you need to stay ready and full of the Holy Ghost. The reason why we say this is not to scare anybody. It has been presented as a fearful thing before, but nowhere does the scripture say, watch therefore and stay awake. Don't get a good night's sleep because you're terrified. The Lord's going to leave you behind. No, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 18. Comfort one another with these words. When you're in the funeral procession line and you're standing next to the family of those that are faithful, what's going to be the comfort? What will be the things you'll say? It should be Jesus is coming soon. What are you to say with someone as they're going through a hard time and walking through the valley of the shadow of death? What did Paul say would be the words of comfort to a persecuted church, to people that are lonely, to people that feel isolated, to people that feel forsaken, and to people who are afraid? Jesus Christ is coming soon. The return of Jesus will bring a reunion. It'll bring back people's, people's spirits that have been separated from their body. They will be made whole again. People that have been separated from their loved ones and their family members and their friends will be reunited as they, are, as they recall, as they walk into heaven, as they are reunited with their friends and family, as they meet the Lord that death was not not a forever goodbye, but it was a see you later because Jesus is returning. Corinthians, and I have time to go into it, but it says that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor corruption inherit incorruption. But I tell you a mystery, we shall not all sleep the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed for this corruptible will put on incorruption and this mortal will put on immortality and this corruptible has been put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality. Then it shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory and then he waxes poetical. Death, what you got? Death, what is your sting? Oh, Hades, place of the dead. Where is your victory? The sting of death is sin. The strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Where's your victory? The coming of the Lord. Where are you victorious? The coming of the Lord. I'm sure you'll beat some giants and you'll
you'll climb some mountains when you live here. But where will you be victorious if you are faithful? The coming of the Lord. It is our hope. It is our hope. It is our hope. Praise God. Praise God. Christ's return will not just be a reunion of you with you. Because you're not you without your body. We'll talk about that probably next week. It's not just going to bring a reunion with the people that you love, but it's also going to bring relief. It's your deliverance. Heaven is your deliverance. Heaven is the death of death. Heaven, the return of Jesus, is the crushing of the sting of sin and death. We still carry around that curse in our bodies. I, I hate to break it to you, but one day if the Lord doesn't come before you kick the bucket, you are going to kick the bucket. We're all going to die. One day your family will stand at your gravesite and they'll hopefully say really nice things about you because you will not live forever. But at the coming of Jesus, your body will be resurrected and you will be delivered from death. He's writing to people that are being persecuted. He's writing to people that are experiencing hardship. And he's saying, hold on, keep the faith. Don't lose heart because Jesus is coming soon. Our comfort stand with me. Our comfort is not just the miraculous intervention of the spirit now. Though I, I believe in all of it. But the ultimate comfort of our life is not that I pray and prophesy and decree and declare and speak to mountains and cast them to be gone. What brings me comfort is if I bang my fists on that mountain and I pray and fast and it doesn't go away and I still stay sick or I still stay in the turbulent circumstance that when Jesus returns, and when he comes for me, he's going to bring deliverance to my life. That mountain will be removed. It may not be right now, but when I see Jesus face to face, sin and Satan will be conquered. I will be conquered. Our comfort is this. Soon and very soon we shall see the king. Life is hard, but Jesus is coming. Grief is awful, but Jesus is coming. You may be saying, Adam, I'm sick. Adam, I've got so many problems in my life. Hold on. Jesus is coming. I'm concerned about the world. I'm concerned about the state it's in. Do not be alarmed because Jesus is coming. Adam, my heart is broken. I miss my family that has gone to heaven. Jesus is coming. That is our hope. So your prayer tonight in the 90 seconds we have left is Jesus, help me to keep my eyes fixed on you. Thank him for the hope of heaven. And pray as the early church did. Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. These altars are open right now for you to respond to the most significant event of your life. And that is the coming of the Lord Jesus. Whether you need to get ready, whether you need to realign your priorities, or whether you just need to lift up your hands and say, Jesus, I'm waiting for that day. I invite you right now as they begin to sing, to begin to call out to the Lord Jesus and begin to lift your hands to him and say, Lord, it's you I'm looking for. If you're distracted, if you're brokenhearted, 